A few years back, I was on staff at a camp named Sky Lodge Christian Camp. This was a place that I had gone growing up every summer from the time that I could, you know, go to camp. Uh, they had camps all the way through grade school, and then once you were out of grade school, you could work at the camp as either, you know, work in the kitchen, as a lifeguard, as a counselor, all these great things. And so every summer, this is where I wanted to be. This was my home away from home. And one of my favorite parts of being at Sky Lodge was the opportunity to be a counselor during the summers. Now, for any of you who have been around multiple fourth to sixth grade boys all at the same time, multiply that energy by about 10 because they're away for a week and their parents are not there. There were about 20 of them per cabin, and the stench was near unbearable. <laughs> These were smelly, crazy boys who didn't want to sleep, and yet they were some of the best weeks of my life. And I'm still in touch with a lot of those campers. Uh, a lot of the campers then eventually just grew up to be on staff either with me or even this past summer I was there speaking to a camp, and I realized looking out that all of their counselors I had counseled. And so it's this really cool experience when you grow up going to a camp, you get to know the campers, and then they grow up and become staff, and you just continue to have this great connection with them. Um, however, one of the hardest parts of the job, especially for someone who's fairly introverted, is whenever the new campers show up every week, you have to get to know them, obviously, right? You're there with, the, with them for a week, so you might as well start off on a good fit, especially trying to be the cool counselor. I was 16, what can I say? And this led me to some interesting situations. I remember there was one group in particular that I was having a really hard time connecting with, but there was one kid, we'll call him John, it's not his name, but we'll call him John because it's an easy name to go for, and I know there's multiple Johns here in the congregation, so why not? So there's this one kid named John who I saw a glimmer of, if I connect with this kid, then I'm in with all of them. There's always the ringleader. And I thought, I might be able to get in with this kid. So I started investing my time there. And this John thought he was a ladies' man. Emphasis on thought he was a ladies' man. The ladies did not agree. And because of this, he often ended up getting either laughed at or mocked by the girls because he'd go up with them trying to flirt, trying to get their numbers. It's what fifth grade boys do, I guess. And because of how the girls would respond, this caused John to become visibly upset. Sometimes he would leave our games. He would go off and complain just be generally upset, like, how dare they reject me? I am peak masculinity, little fifth grader. Um, and so I would pull him aside and try to talk to him about it, try to talk him through, like, hey, bud, you know, like, maybe just focus on spending time with the guys, focus on, you know, we're here to have fun, we're here to do archery, swimming, canoeing, all the great paintball, all the fun stuff. Maybe focus on that instead of trying to find a girlfriend for four days until you never see her again. And so this resulted in talking to him all the time. And it almost came to the point where he'd pull me aside during group lessons specifically. And so while I thought I was helping him, and I thought I was pointing him to pay attention towards what Jesus is doing in this week, what I realized as the week went on was he was using my care for him as a way to get out of Bible lessons, as a way to get out of situations that might actually challenge him to grow. I realized that he was using my attempts of bringing God to him to get away from opportunities to see God for himself. But how common is that? How often do we see examples of people doing bad things because they want people to like them? How often do we see people doing things that they don't even realize are detrimental to those around them just in an attempt to get in or to have friends or to be cool? Welcome back to Lakeside Community Church. My name is Jacob. I'm part of the team here. I am specifically the next-gen pastor. So if you have students in 6th through 12th grades, join us down at the Algoma Youth Club on Wednesday nights. We have a lot of fun. There's my plug. 
getting back to the message. I'm filling in up here while Brian is taking so much needed time away with his family. Uh, they got a vacation here, and they're having a great time. So he said, hey, Jacob, it's your turn. And I'm so glad that you guys decided to join us this morning, despite the snow, despite Thanksgiving, despite, I'm sure, extra leftovers in the kitchen at home that we're probably very appetizing this morning. And we're continuing on in our series through the book of Acts this morning. Uh, you can access it through a couple different ways. First of all, we use a tool called the YouVersion Bible app. If you open that up, you can download it on any app store. Um, you can go to the Events tab, and from there, search either Lakeside Community Church Algoma, or just turn on your locations, and it'll pull up this message with all of the verses we'll be going through today. If you're using a physical Bible, we'll be in, again, the book of Acts, chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. And if you don't want to use your phone because it distracts you and you don't have a Bible with you, we'll also have it up on the screen. So let's begin by looking at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. We're picking up where we left off last week. For anyone who was here last week, you'll remember that Paul was being tried by a guy named Felix. Felix was the governor of Judea at that time. And the Jews were trying to bring a lot of charges against Paul in order to get him to stop promoting the gospel because they were threatened by the gospel because they wanted people to stay Jewish and not become Christian. And so Felix had already ran Paul through all the courts and trials that he could come up with. And yet, regardless of what was thrown his way, regardless of what charges the Jews brought against him, there was nothing they could pin on him. Felix had to admit, like, you know, you're... We can't find anything on this guy. But in order to do a favor for the Jews, in order for the Jews to continue to like him, Felix just kind of left Paul in prison. And there he sat for two years, which brings us up to where we are now. Everyone knew he was innocent, but Felix wanted the Jews to like him. So let's pick up. We're starting in with a new governor. Felix is out, Festus is in. Similar names-ish, but this is the new guy. So we read here. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So, Festus arrives in the province. He's the new guy in town. He wants everyone to like him because, you know, you're trying to rule these people. It's good if they like you back at least a little bit. And so he heads to Jerusalem, which was roughly 75 miles away from Caesarea. And back then, there were not cars, obviously. And so that was, you know, a decent trip. It was not a short, well, I'll just pop over there and pop home. No, this was, you know, if you're going 75 miles, you're going to stay there for a little bit. So Festus decided, I'm going to spend some time in Jerusalem, get to know these people I'm leading. And we can assume that at this point in the province's history, word had kind of gotten around that this province was troublesome. Festus took over from Felix who had taken over from another guy, who had taken over from Pontius Pilate. Does that name ring a bell? Pontius Pilate, as in the guy who sentenced Christ to be hung on a cross, Pontius Pilate. And so for the past few leaders, this province of Judea, this town of Jerusalem, was kind of known for being full of troublemakers and people who didn't want to follow the Roman rules. They kind of liked to bully the leaders around, try to make them do what they wanted them to do. And so Festus would have known this going in. And he thought, let me get ahead of the curve let me jump in, get in there, figure out who they are, make connections, so that, that way maybe we can have a pretty smooth governing relationship. And right away, as soon as he got there, the Jewish leaders began laying out their case against Paul, saying all the same things that you heard about last week, saying all the same things they brought before Felix as charges, and they kept asking Festus, hey, bring him here. Bring Paul to Jerusalem. The Jews knew that another fair trial would not go their way. They're like, we've tried this before. We don't want to just go to the Roman place. We don't want to go to Caesarea and try him there. Let's bring him here. 
And little did Festus know that the plan wasn't even for a trial. The plan was get Paul on the road in a place where he can't escape. We'll ambush him and kill him. Take care of the problem. Won't even have to try him. Can't try a dead guy. So the Jewish leaders knew Paul wasn't going to be convicted. They knew there was nothing they could do to get this through the Roman courts of law. And so they decided, hey, Festus, bring him here. Do us a favor. And what you don't know is we're going to kill him. And likely, this request was pretty appealing to Festus. Again, remember, he's the new guy. He wants these people to like him. And so he likely considered this little favor as kind of a good option. But in the end, he decided to turn it down which, as a guy trying to get in with a new group of people, seems kind of crazy for Festus to do. But let's read on. In verses 4 and 5, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Festus replies, Paul's already in Caesarea, and I'm about to go there anyways. Why make a bunch of trips back and forth when I'm already going down? So why don't you pick out some trusted leaders from among you, and you can come with me and present your charges before me there in a formal court. That way, Paul can respond in turn, and Festus can also be known as a guy who makes fair decisions. Festus knows the habits of the mob in Jerusalem. Again, Festus knows that there's a history of guys who are innocent getting condemned either to prison or death because... That was the mob there. And he decides, let's do this the right way. Instead of letting the mob have the rule, instead of just letting whoever is there have a voice, pick out a couple leaders. Pick out a couple representatives. Send them with me to Caesarea. And there we'll be able to have a fair trial with your leaders, your representatives, not the mob. And I will do the trying. This was a good way of both appeasing the Jewish leaders with another trial, but also maintaining his control over the situation. Because again, he's a new guy in town. He wants them to like him, but he also has to make a name for himself. He has to make sure people will still respect him. He needs the Jewish people to like him, but not think that they could just push him around to do whatever they want him to do. So we read on in verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Festus stayed in Jerusalem for about a week and a half-ish, which... It's a pretty good amount of time to get to know a town, get to know the people, get to know some of the culture and just how it all operates. And while he was there, he was likely building relationships with them. And like I said, trying to kind of understand their customs, trying to understand who they are before going into this trial. Because he knows there's a lot going on here that he doesn't quite fully understand as an outsider. And so he spends time investing in those relationships, trying to understand who the Jewish leaders were and where they were coming from. It's much easier to mediate a disagreement between two close friends who you know well and understand what they mean, even if they don't understand what they mean, than to mediate a fight between two random guys on the street. If I have two buddies who are fighting, they might not be willing to talk to each other, but I'll understand their verbiage. I know who they are. I have a relationship with them. So I can understand where they're coming from, what they're saying, and their background. 
But if I'm walking down downtown Algoma and there's two guys fighting, I don't know who they are. My, maybe you do because you're from here. I don't know who they are. And so it'd be much easier to mediate between my friends than the two random guys I meet on the street fighting. So Festus was trying to understand who the Jews were, where they were coming from, and why Paul would be such an annoyance to them. After his time in Jerusalem, Festus goes back to Caesarea, where he takes a seat on his tribunal. This is a word that we use a lot of times in the church, but if you don't know what it means, the tribunal simply put is a judgment seat. It's a seat that when Festus sits down on it, he becomes judge, jury, and executioner. The tribunal is a place where whoever's sitting on it, who has the authority to sit there, can make decisions, and that decision is law. When Paul arrived before Festus, the Jewish leaders who had come from Jerusalem began spreading their lies and rumors about Paul. They began sharing their charges against him, which they could not prove. It says they brought many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. When I was back in Dubuque, I think this was two summers ago, I worked a summer job as deck building. And I knew the guy through my school. It was like the son-in-law of some professor. One of those weird connections you find when you're in college. And so one day while we were taking our lunch break, my boss was telling me that he had just spent the day at the Dubuque courthouse. He was, his son had just gotten a speeding ticket. And so my boss went down with him to contest it and uh, try to figure out a solution around it. But on top of that speeding ticket, my boss told me that his son also received a fine for obstruction of view because he had an air freshener hanging from his mirror. And so what my boss soon found out was that it was commonplace in Dubuque County, specifically, for the cops to sometimes charge on an extra charge, whether or not it was legit, just to have multiple charges on a ticket. They would charge on a second charge of some sort in order to discourage you from actually going to the courthouse to contest. Because to contest the charge, you had to pay a separate fee for each charge you were contesting. And so by the time they spent the day at court, and by the time you paid the fee to contest a couple different charges, it might have just been easier or cheaper to just accept the charge, pay the fine, and go about your business. And so my boss said that he knew of a couple cops in Dubuque personally who would intentionally tack more charges on just so that the defendant would end up just kind of accepting them and not fighting it. And this is what the Jewish leaders were trying to do. They said, we know that most of our charges are not going to fall through. But maybe if we bring up enough charges, something will stick. Maybe if we bring up enough charges, something will fall through the cracks and not, get, not be able to be uh, discounted. It's the epitome of the saying, if you throw enough mud at a wall, eventually some will stick. The Jewish leaders were hoping to just pile on accusation after accusation and eventually hoped that either Paul would slip up or Festus would just accept something so the trial would be done. But Paul wasn't going to let his reputation slide like this. He responds saying, I have not done anything wrong. I haven't broken Roman law. I haven't broken Jewish law. I have not committed any offenses against the temple. He says, I've committed no offense against anyone, which is a pretty brave thing to say. I don't think I could say that. I probably offended someone at some point. But that was his offense, which was not enough for Festus. So we go on in verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. 
again, we go back to these Jewish leaders here typically caused a lot of problems for the Roman provinces. And so Festus is still trying to do them a favor so that they'll like him. Festus asks Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem and be tried there? Do you want to go to the hive? Do you want to go to the nest and be tried there? And Paul says, absolutely not. No way do I want to go to a place where everyone is against me for a quote-unquote fair trial. Usually, you know the town you're going to be in. If you're going to be tried, if the jury, if everyone in the jury is against you, you know you're not going to have a fair trial. And so Paul says, absolutely not. He says, here I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. Here I am standing before the guy who is the role of Caesar in this province. And I am a Roman citizen. This is where I ought to be tried. Paul's calling out Festus for knowing that Paul's innocent, but Festus still refuses to let him go. Paul says, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Paul knows if he goes to Jerusalem to be tried, no court will be impartial, and he'll be found guilty like that. And Paul continues in verse 11. If then I am a wrongdoer, and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Here Paul says, if I've done anything wrong, punish me. If I've committed a crime worthy of death, kill me for it. I'm not trying to escape punishment. I'm not trying to escape justice for a crime I have done. However, there is no crime that I have done. And then he appeals to Caesar. In ancient Rome, any Roman citizen... It's a little blurry through the textbooks, exactly how it worked. But the gist is, in ancient Rome, if you were a Roman citizen and you felt that you were getting given an unjust or unfair trial, you could appeal to Caesar, and that appeal would have to go through. Festus could not really have declined it from what we know about Roman culture. And so Paul says, I'm appealing to Caesar. You have to bring me to Rome, and I will be tried before Caesar himself before I'm tried in Jerusalem. This is the equivalent in America of appealing to a higher court. But instead of just appealing to you know, a higher judge or a different county or instead of county going to state, this is like going straight from county jail to the president. I appeal to Caesar. And because of his status as a Roman citizen, Festus replies to Paul, to Caesar you have appealed and to Caesar you shall go. But while waiting for the time to come to bring Paul before Caesar, two people came to Judea to meet with Festus and visit the area. These were King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. And we see in verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them 
that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. King Agrippa II had initially ruled over northern Israel before moving on to a different province. Because of this, Festus knew that this Agrippa guy would kind of know the culture. He already ruled over part of Israel. He would already know the culture and the customs and the people and probably more about the Jewish religion than Festus himself did at this point. And so Festus says, hey, you're more familiar with this area. What do you think about this trial? So Festus begins to tell Agrippa this whole situation, which at this point has gone through two different governors and a bunch of different trials, and it probably was just a waste of Roman money at this point. So verse 16 shows us that while wanting the Jews to like him, Festus was not willing to give up or break any Roman customs just to do a favor for the Jews. He says, I answered that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face. We see Festus was a believer in innocence until proven guilty. And he didn't want to just condemn Paul to be guilty, to be executed, without having the opportunity to defend himself. He said, I want to do a favor for these Jewish leaders. I want them to be on my side, but I'm not going to break our, our rules. I'm not going to break our laws in order to do that. And so Festus continues sharing his story in verse 17. So when they came here, together here, I made no delay but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus states, he made no delay. He wanted to be known as a leader who took care of stuff quickly. He wanted to be known as a leader who took care of stuff justly. He wanted to be a leader who people would follow and who people liked. However, once the Jewish accusers began sharing their charges, once the Jewish leaders began sharing what their claims about what Paul had done or said were, Festus quickly realized that this case was baseless. Festus quickly realized this is not going to stand up before any court. But he still accepted their dispute and would not proclaim Paul innocent. Yet we get a glimpse into his mindset behind this decision. He knew legally that there was no case here. He knew legally that nothing could actually happen to Paul. But he also realized that this case was more on a religious level than a legal level. Festus quickly learned that he was out of his depth and had no clue what to do about this guy. He didn't understand the difference of opinion on who this Jesus guy was, which going into a place that the last three guys who've held your seat have had to deal with trouble related to a guy named Jesus, you probably should have done some research. But he didn't understand the difference on opinion of who Jesus was, and he really didn't understand why it mattered whether he was dead or alive. He's like, if some people claim he's dead, cool. If some people claim he's alive, go find him. And so he was confused why it was such a big deal that Paul claimed Jesus came back to life after being crucified under one of his predecessors. So Festus realizes quickly, I'm out of my league here. I have no idea what to do. But what does he tell Agrippa next? Verse 20. 
Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Festus finishes his story, and yet again, as we already knew, he kept Paul in custody until he could be brought before Caesar. Agrippa, Agrippa himself had his interest piqued. He said, I want to meet this guy. I want to hear his story myself. I'm confused, but it's interesting. And so Festus tells Agrippa, tomorrow you will meet him. And that's where we leave the story off. Paul's still in prison. He's awaiting Caesar. Festus is very confused. The Jews are still trying to get some favors. And Agrippa wants to talk to Paul. Feels like we're kind of leaving off in the middle of the story. But well, that's where we're leaving the story. Where does that leave us? Oftentimes in life, we'll see people living in a certain way in an effort to get people to like them. And oftentimes it's not as straightforward or as legal as keeping a guy in jail. But we've all done things to get people to like us. I know I have. We will see people doing bad things just because they think that those things will bring them love, will bring them friendship, will bring them fulfillment. Fill in the blank. I mostly work with teenagers. And so I see this week in and week out. If I just try this vape, maybe my friends will think I'm cool. If I bully that kid over there, maybe people will think I'm strong and funny. Maybe if I just take the next step physically in my relationship, I'll feel loved and accepted. But this isn't just a problem isolated to teenagers. What in your life do you do just so people will like you? Is it drive a cool car? I wish I drove a cool car, but that's more for myself. Is it buying a big house so you can entertain people? Is it talking bad about your spouse to family and friends so they'll think you're funny and cool? For Festus, he's in a new town. He's trying to be the cool guy. He's trying to get favors from people. He's trying to be in charge and have people like him. And through no fault of his own, he inherited a province full of liars, full of holdover prisoners, and full of religious strife that he knows nothing about. And because of this, when he was trying to get people to like him, he continued the false trials of Paul, keeping him jailed up, even though Festus knew Paul was innocent and guilty of nothing. Festus continued to try to do favors for the Jews, even when he knew Paul was innocent. Has this ever happened to you? Has, ever, has someone ever tried to pin something on you, but you knew you were innocent? Imagine what would have happened if Paul had committed any crime. He quickly would have been found guilty. He quickly would have been executed. And the spread of the gospel in the early church would have been irreversibly damaged. I've grown up in an internet age. The Google search engine was already three years old by the time I was born. I'll admit it, I'm a little younger than most of you. But I've seen countless examples of people whose lives have been destroyed by stuff that they've either said or done online. 
regardless of whether or not that reflects their real character or their real lives. I've seen countless examples of people who thought they could keep their online lives and their real lives separate by just turning off their computer. I've seen multiple examples of people sharing screenshots, whether they're real or not, that completely ruin someone's reputation, regardless of the truth of the image. I've seen people's lives upended by drama and scandals done to things online, both public figures and personal connections. And even if the innocence is there, there's always got to be an initial seed to sprout that idea. No matter how small that seed is, there's always a seed. No tree grows from nothing, unless there is one, but I'm not a farmer, so ask someone else. But it's my goal to live in such a way that when the world tries to tear me down, I can confidently say, as Paul said, but if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one could give me up to them. Paul said, if what I have done is guilty of death, kill me. But I know I did nothing wrong. Live as Paul lived so that when the world comes against you, bringing charges, throwing mud at the wall just to see what would stick, regardless of public opinion, regardless of who you're trying to do favors for, regardless of who else is around you, live in such a way that is clear to all who hear the claims that they are baseless. Live in such a way that you don't need to rely on people around you for fulfillment. Live in such a way that you don't have to do favors to feel fulfilled. Live in such a way that you only need to lean on God for support because he is always there and he will always love you. He will always know the truth, regardless of what's being said. He will always offer grace. And he will always accept you with open arms if you accept him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this beautiful snowy day. I pray for everyone in this room that we would be able to live as Paul did. That we would be able to live a life free from the charges. That we'd be able to live in such a way that when the world tries to tear us down, that we would be able to say, we're not running from the charges. We just aren't guilty. I pray that you give us people in our lives who we can lean on and rely on and who we can receive love from free of charge. I pray that you show us how to just live in your light, God. Show us that there's nothing that we need to do in life. There's nothing that we can do in life to make you love us anymore. Show us how to accept that love, God. Pray you give us the wisdom to live a good life. Pray you give us the wisdom to live a good life after your word. Live a good life that follows your commands. I pray that you give us the hearts to hear your commands, but even more, the heart to hear you. Pray you give us the ability to receive your love, receive your blessing, receive your grace, and then go and tell the world about you. In your name, amen.